Hey everyone, thank you so much for watching another episode of the WeVA podcast. I'm super excited to welcome Ethan Steininger. Uh, Ethan is a prolific entrepreneur who's created uh, Mixed Peak and Kali, and he's really got our, our attention to someone who's building cool things with WeVA and generally in the uh, search and AI space, uh, master of software engineering. So Ethan, thank you so much for joining the podcast. I definitely know, don't know about master, but I appreciate the enthusiastic intro. Awesome. Uh, so maybe to, then could you dive into your kind of background in software engineering and search? Maybe, yeah, maybe search is more the master. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm actually only recently uh, immersed in the search ecosystem, but I guess that doesn't act as too much of a detractor considering the industry has changed so much in the last year alone. Uh, so my background is actually as a software engineer, went to school for programming actually started a lot of projects, a lot of startups. Most, if not all of them, have failed. Uh, so I've got my own, if you've ever seen the Killed by Google website, I've got my own graveyard of projects and <laughs> GitHub repos, et cetera, that I've abandoned. So no shortage of failed projects. But uh, my foray into search was actually at my most recent job, which was at MongoDB. Uh, they made the decision to actually embed Lucene, which is like, the core, for those unfamiliar with Lucene, is the core open source library that powers Elasticsearch, Solar, and a, and a ton of other search engines out there. And MongoDB decided to kind of embed that open source library within the database and couple it together. And because that's such a, a novel concept at the time, they needed a, a special SWAT team to help take that product to market. And so that's what I was summoned to do, which was really just a matter of defining the, the customer profile, building out technical collateral, talking to customers, and being that kind of liaison to the product who's actually, I won't mention his name, but he's one of the uh, formal advisors of, of Weviate uh, and actually one of my old-time mentors when I first got into search. But that's kind of how I first got into uh, the industry, just being summoned to uh, support the go-to-market of MongoDB's search product. That's so interesting. I yeah, learning about. Uh, well, I guess I'm kind of curious about this, like Lucene MongoDB. Maybe I'm, I'm very like I don't know if it's the most entertaining podcast topic, but I am very curious. Like, <laughs> like, what, like what are these technologies? Kind of like um, yeah, is that too ambiguous? Because I know so little about this kind of world. I've I've like kind of I joined WeVA coming from like the deep learning background of being very interested in just kind of representation learning optimized vectors and then started and then so from there I came into like Elasticsearch, Lucene, Solar, hearing about these things. So uh, would you mind maybe talking a little more about like what is the underlying technology of Mongo and Solar and these kind of things? Yeah, I love the fact that you take most things from a research angle like that. The how does it work, uh, which is something that I need to get better at, but I've historically tried to figure out like the the positioning of the product and like what kind of immediate business pain is, does it solve? I was in, I was a sales engineer at MongoDB, uh, but under the hood, it, it's really actually quite simple. I mean, every database has a change stream API, uh, MySQL, Mongo, Dynamo, they all have some kind of listener that you can uh, open up like a cursor on the database. So anytime there's a change, you get alerted of that change. And so the architects behind that MongoDB search uh, architecture 
they basically coupled the ChainStream cursor API, which listens in on changes and replicated all of those changes into a Lucene inverted index. And so once you have those two data structures together, then they basically created a, a, a wrapper on top that exposes, if it's called the aggregation pipeline in MongoDB, it's kind of like the querying language. They exposed this aggregation uh, stage that allowed you to uh, run a search query on the Lucene inverted index. And then once you have the results of that search query, it would actually pipe it back into the MongoDB database, which would allow you to do uh, kind of, you have the term hybrid search. That's hybrid if you had like database queries. Uh, but I know you guys have hybrid as in like TFIDF plus vector search. So uh, it's a little bit of a, a different positioning where customers that really value the ACID compliant properties of a database and want to combine that with the uh, with the, the full text search functionality. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I, I think yeah, I was really curious. Uh, you've written this great article on the ML stack where you have the ACID compliant thing and then Weaviate. And I was like, Weaviate has the database stuff too. <laughs> so I was like, do you not agree? Like, I'm curious, like, is there something to the ACID support in um, Mongo that's left out of Weaviate? Yeah, I wouldn't say there's anything left out, but I, as someone that has sold to enterprise customers for a long time, customers are reluctant to change their system of record, right? And so like when people are already using a Mongo or even an Oracle and they're using that as their source of truth, their, their database, it's a lot easier to tack on an existing search engine and have that just be coupled together via some kind of streaming technology rather than just replacing it all together. So I, I'm sure that the, the Weaviate database API set and methods are, are super robust to just thinking about it from customer standpoint, unless you're a startup and you're just doing something new for the first time, they typically have big customers typically have a lot of uh, legacy code, data stores in old database, et cetera. But it's a good question. Yeah, that's super interesting. And I uh, kind of coming back to something else you said earlier about the MongoDB aggregate uh, pipeline. Uh, Sebastian Wudeleka, also former uh, Mongo and and now Weaviate, he's shown me that this kind of aggregate thing in the uh, like thinking about the Weaviate pipe design and all these different filters that be, can be attached to Weaviate. I think it's so interesting. Like the yeah, just all these kind of things you can do to it. So maybe pivoting topics. Um, can you tell me about kind of the founding vision behind MixPeak and and the problem you're tackling? Yeah, one of the most common problems that I had experienced, so I, I was traveling the world talking to our most challenging customers when I was at Mongo. And one of the themes that I had learned about pretty much every week, if not every day, was really that of how do we search the contents of files? Mm -hmm. And most of the use case was really PDF files, just because these were mostly enterprise customers. Enterprise uh, companies have a ton of PDFs, spreadsheets, even like doc files, document files. Uh, and so I was just basically telling them all to, hey, like you got to create this framework and this architecture and you're using Tika and you're extracting the Tika contents into your search engine. You're doing chunking and all these things. And it got to the point where it's like, all right, this is a big enough pain. I've seen this enough. And the vector search uh, projects were becoming more and more popular. 
Uh, and this was right around when Lucene, I forget which version it was, but it's when they first introduced the vector KNN uh, capability into uh, the, the core Lucene branch. And uh, that really unlocked a, a lot of super interesting opportunities and uh, decided to, to quit Mongo and build that out full time. And then I'm very grateful to have raised the seed round from some investors. And that's given me a little bit of a, a cushion to explore some of these really radically changing areas. Uh, I've, I've been talking to a lot of startups. I live in New York and I've been talking to a lot of startup founders around the New York City area about like, how has your roadmap really changed in the last three, four months? And every single one of them is like, yeah, drastically. <laughs> We've pivoted so significantly to keep up with all these changes. And like OpenAI's plugin marketplace was just announced yesterday. And you best believe at least thousands of startups are going to be considered moot because they've just built wrappers on top of the ChatGBT API. Hmm. So we're, we're definitely about to experience an Apple to App Store like uh, paradigm shift. And uh, I, I'm Super impressed that we V8. Uh, I saw Bob's post. We V8 is on the the plugin marketplace. You guys are well positioned to be that default vector search engine that wraps on top of ChatGPT right out of the box. So, uh, but yeah, that was kind of like the intro to why I started to develop Mixpeak. And at its core, it's really just a multimodal indexing, embedding, and search API. So we take all of the messiness around the database, the uh, keyword search, the vector search, the file parsers, the file extraction, and finally the search. And we just expose it as two API calls uh, with re-ranking, chunking, analytics, et cetera, all baked in. Yeah, amazing. Uh, so I think there's a few things on that. I, I think I'd like to come back to the uh, ChatGPT plugin because that's such an interesting topic. But first, I really want to just kind of pick your brain more about the Mixpeak uh, goals. And so so on this idea of, and I also think maybe we could talk about Kali as well, this like really nice user interface for getting like dropping PDFs in and then it's in the vector database in the ChatGPT thing, like all this kind of ranking, all that is like accessible on so I, I'm so curious about this kind of data ingestion, like kind of, I think the PDF ingestion with like, I, I, I recently called it OCR on the podcast with Dennis Zhu from Mem. And he said, no, it's, it's, it's so powerful. You can't call it OCR, like the way that GPT-4, he said, it's like having a human looking at your PDF, but surely these things will just make it super easy to get PDFs into, you know, vector databases and stuff like that. And yeah, all of that. I, so I'm curious, kind of like, how do you see this, these uh, innovations and maybe like this LLM enabled ETL for unstructured data kind of, as well as this kind of chunking idea, like what are some of the opportunities maybe around chunking? Yeah, uh, I, I think one of the most impressive use cases that I saw for GPT-4, uh, by the way, uh, there was a paper that was just released by Microsoft Research, uh, I believe two days ago, the 22nd, today's the 24th all about, hey, we think that ChatGPT4 is demonstrating a spark of, of artificial general intelligence. And in that paper, they used a couple of use case examples, one of which was, like you said, somebody provided a picture and it not only described the picture, but it extracted the contents from it. 
obviously well beyond OCR. It's like a human is <laughs> interpreting it. Uh, and that, again, that helps us kind of position what we think is the most valuable. And at its core, I mean, this is my theory on like, a lot of startups are having existential crises right now. Uh, and like ChatGPT is rendering a lot of them moot. And so what I'm, what I'm telling anybody that's asking is like, you need to get closer to the business and you need to understand what their pains are and build phenomenal user experiences on top of that. Right. And so if you think about who your user is, for me, I'm building an API. So my user experience is the developer experience. And if I can really nail that developer experience and make it as sticky as possible, that's my moat. That's my competitive moat. And I advise the same thing for anybody else because like in the end of the day, and this is what I've always told people that challenged when we were positioning MongoDB's Atlas search, in the end of the day, any engineer can build anything really at its core. I mean, maybe it won't be as good. It won't be as robust. It won't have high availability service level uh, SLAs, uh, but they could build it. It's just a matter of like, A, do they want to? And B, is it as intuitive and clean as you could. Uh, so definitely a couple of existential threats there, but as long as you're getting close to the business and understanding the pain, then you're in a good spot. Yeah, it's so interesting. I really like kind of the story that's emerging in our podcast so far of like this kind of like customer success oriented sales engineer thing and how that leads you to think about how the perspective that creates when you're building this kind of startup in the space. And yeah, it's so interesting. And maybe kind of staying on this topic of moot existential crises, we could come back to the ChatGPT uh, retrieval plugin. Um, it's, yeah, it's so interesting, this kind of like uh, the marketplace for ChatGPT being like hosted on the UI. Because right? we saw so much, we saw so much like building around the API, like, I don't know, like Langchain, Llama Index, the two things that I've been super invested in learning is like, these, you know, building these kind of appendages around ChatGPT rather than kind of the ChatGPT UI like host the apps. And yeah, I'm just curious what your perspective, like, I think it's such a fun, like emerging topic is, is like, is this going to be the app store kind of, or like, cause yeah, or would it be like the API? Like just how do you see the, that kind of space? Yeah, I'd, I'd wonder, and obviously everybody's just like conjecturing right now. But there's really two avenues I think it could take. It's really either going to be a Zapier-like experience where you could just combine all these things together. I can use ChatGBT to be the link between, I don't know, my Roku with my Alexa and my thermostat, right? Where ChatGBT is the link between them, them all where the kind of adhesive, the glue is my human language. Do this, then that, whatever. That's, that's one area. And the other is really just like a standard marketplace where you can procure services from within the ChatGPT like interface. I saw a couple of examples where people were booking flights from within ChatGPT. So that <laughs> could be that single point interface for all of the apps within the marketplace. Uh, it's probably more so going to be the second rather than the first because the first, I mean, there's really not much moat around just being a glue between everything. But the first is really like, if this is your default entry point for getting anything done, accessing the internet, your calendar, your trips, then that's, it's remarkable. 
Yeah. Wow. That is, I mean, um, I, yeah, it's like the, the business model, the moat is super fascinating. Like the, um, obviously they make like, I think it's like $20 a month is the cost for this UI, right? Like to even access the app store. Cause it's only, can, is it, is that a correct understanding for us that it's only the paid version that has this plugin or I'm not sure about that, but I am a very proud GPT four subscriber. <laughs> so I'll find out soon. Yeah. I'm subscribing as well. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it's funny. I feel like uh, no offense to anyone that works at Google, but the last time I've Googled it, I'm a, I'm coding all day. The last time I've used stack overflow is like weeks ago. It's exclusively mm. been chat GPT, which is, really demonstrating a significant paradigm shift. Yeah, I've also been just, uh, well, I, I also am so excited to check out uh, Copilot X. I haven't yet uh, like spun it up yet, but I mean, the, the ability of it to write code is amazing. Like my kind of story with this is that, you know, weva written in Golang and I don't really know Golang, but I can like, be, with the help of ChatGPT, it's just making the learning curve like so much quicker. Like I, you know, if I say, Hey, I need you to sort this list. Like I have this dictionary, I have these keys. I don't even need to know about like the map interface, the map thing of Golang. It'll write it for me. And then once I see it, now I can quickly adapt. So that's I remember there was this paper from Facebook that came out like three years ago. It was like translating between JavaScript and Python. I was like, wow, that's so ambitious. But yeah, now it's like I think, yeah, what I, I would love to talk more about, get your perspective on how you see, how uh, GPT-4 helps your coding productivity, because for me, that kind of helped me learn a new language has been just the biggest one. Yeah. Well, before I answer that question, I think that there is a big opportunity around using this large language model and really others. I mean, we shouldn't only focus on ChatGPT, like OpenAI is doing really well. Uh, the open source models are super exciting. I know that... Mm. Uh, Llama, Stanford's Llama is is generating a lot of hype just because it's smaller, it's more lightweight, it can run with le on less CPUs, and it's open source. So, uh, just well, there's there's other options out there, uh, but at its core, like what I've been doing is, I mean, ChatGPT for any use case in the uh, we'll call it content creation, so code, copy whatever it, it really just serves as like providing a framework for most things. It's never really producing a final copy, maybe for like a one line email it will, but for code, I mean, no one's just dropping it right into their code and like <laughs> deploying to production. Like if, if that happens, then we've got things to worry about. <laughs> but I think we're a far ways from that. Uh, famous last words, obviously. <laughs> Yeah, so I think the like the llama alpaca thing. One thing about that that's so interesting to me is kind of like the licensing of it. Like with llama, it it doesn't have a commercial license. Like you, it's like I think it's like just for research purposes. So like the alpaca, it's like you can use it for your phone, but you can't like just use it. And I think that is another interesting thing. Like OpenAI, they have this thing where they're saying um, you can't use the model to develop models that compete with OpenAI. So obviously like the knowledge distillation thing is like you could just copy the outputs basically and take any model. So yeah, that whole thing around like what you can use the models for is so interesting. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if there is going to be, need to be a like precedence uh, shift around licensing for some of these code bases, these models, because like, I'm sure that there is some, uh, 
finagling around the legal definition of licensing when you've really trained a model on the entire closed source database of GitHub. Mm. Uh, so I, I wonder if there's going to need, if anybody's a policymaker out there, that's a conversation that probably should be had sooner rather than later, because like, is it, is it really fair to have that uh, line item in your legal statement where you've kind of done something different? I don't know. Uh, but alpacas, the way alpaca was trained is really, really fascinating. I mean, they really just started with this open source library or this open source model called Llama, which I think was like 7 billion parameters. They started with that open source model. And then they basically, so whenever you, uh, whenever you fine tune a, uh, we'll call it like these cheap GBT models, you provide prompt completion pairs. And what Stanford did is they actually used ChatGBT to generate prompt completion chairs and they, uh, uh, pairs. And they actually created a feedback loop of uh, positive versus negative, rejecting versus accepting these prompt completion pairs and fed that into Llama. And I guess that margin of new, comp new, new pairs has got it to the level of really competing with the GPT, uh, maybe not four, but maybe the three, uh, which is, which is super valuable. Like imagine the, the example that I always give is really like, imagine these large language models at the edge, mm -hmm. right? If we have an LLM on our phone or even like some off grid device, it's able to, of, it's able to consume any kind of input and generate an output agnostic of its connectivity to the internet and using all the data that it's connecting. It's kind of training on the fly at the edge in real time. It's, it's really a lot faster. Uh, so that could be like another convergence of the two fields is like this AI and IoT uh, mm. space. It's the really first time I've thought about that. I don't know what more use cases beyond what I just made up are. So if anybody has any of them, feel free to share. <laughs> yeah, the, the IoT thing is just... Uh it's super interesting. I, I I don't know if this is productive to mention, but I like I, I took a little grad class in graduate school class in like um in, in the in the Internet of Things. It was about like monitoring buildings and how you like send a pulse in one part of like construction, like you know, building and construction, and it networks, and they're like, okay, the building is okay, right? And thinking about like I don't know, could language models and that be productive or something like? Internet of Things topic has always been interesting that I've known a little bit about, not too much, but anyway, so, it was, so pivoting to the first thing you said about how Alpaca was trained in this kind of reinforcement learning from human feedback thing. Um, I think I'm thinking a lot about like, as impressive as ChatGPT is, what if I find, like, what if I fine tuned it and labeled it on the prompt completions that I like, like you said, like, I think a lot about this, like, like I've had a lot of conversations with like Jonathan Frankel at Mosaic ML and their perspective on uh, businesses wanting their own custom language models. I've also talked to Nathan Lambert about uh, hugging faces, reinforcement learning from human feedback and like surge AI and all these things, like how this might emerge. Because I think about like, let's say I trained a, a language model on like the Weaviate Slack, like, and then I start labeling its generations. I feel like that's just going to give me something better than ChatGPT. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's a, a really interesting point. And the exact direction that I'm taking with Mixpeak, which is around like domain specific data sets, mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, what I'm finding and really everybody's finding is like exactly right. I mean, 
it's nice that ChatGPT understands the internet, but maybe the reason why the revenue model isn't quite sound yet is because they're just hoping that Connor and Ethan pay $20 a month, which they happily do. <laughs> but the, the, real, the real money will always be in the B2B market and not hmm. only the B2B market, the enterprise market. And so there's a ton of companies out there, including me, inclu including Mixpeak that are really trying to understand a company's enterprise, uh, let's say knowledge base hmm. and training models, maybe they'll call them agents, training these agents around understanding that data and then providing some kind of chat GBT like interface on top. Uh, there's so many sources of information. There's Slack, there's Jira, there's uh, email inboxes, Wiki, like these companies have so many different segments of, uh, of knowledge and they're all really like very well formatted, like for better or worse, they're Q and A, like Slack, someone asks a question, I'm sure in the Weaviate Slack channel, there's an answer. And that's a very obvious prompt completion pair that can be sent to a GBT uh, model. So to answer your question, I think that there's really going to be uh, a strong push towards, uh, towards customizing models. Uh, but what I'm also really interested in is like where Weaviate comes in is like you guys have a search engine and the search engine will always be the source of truth. And I was actually on one of Bob's uh, Twitter spaces. I forget. It was somebody from Cohere as well. And I asked the question, hey, like, what do you guys think about how generative models and AI, how does that contend with the search landscape? And a lot of, I mean, my initial thought would be like, it's replacing search, obviously, because you can create information rather than retrieve. But after hearing Bob's great explanation and doing a bit of research, there will always be the need for kind of like referencing the source of how it came to this conclusion. Uh, and Perplexity AI has a great UI for that. I'm quite fond of theirs and I'm modeling uh, the interface that we're building on top of uh, Kali around mm. that that interface, which is really like, and I'm not, I propose this like open source framework for kind of creating the verified truth of generative uh, responses. And it, it really involves mm -hmm. this search engine. You uh, embed an entire corpus of content, then you, you chunk it so that each one has its own meaningful importance, like modular, meaningful, independent importance, and you embed each one. And so then you run a Weaviate query across those entire embeddings get the ones that are most important or maybe the top K most important. And then you feed that into a ChatGBT. And so then ChatGBT has a little bit of context and it understands that little bit of information that can then be used to either create a summary or an answer or something. So that's how I'm seeing a lot of people combine the search plus the generative. And I see that as being a pretty standard framework for creating these things. And I just wrote an article that was like, here are all the steps that, that need to happen to do that because I've built this internally for, I, we could talk about Kali, which is like a really simple user experience for embedding search on your application. But like I've seen and built this framework enough where it, it probably makes sense where someone uh, standardizes it. So if anyone's interested in collaborating on that, happy, happy to talk. <laughs> yeah, super cool. And um, 
Oh yeah. I love that topic. I think kind of one thing about that, that I still think is so exciting was kind of like the first thing is like right now, the general, how do you take the context and put it into the language model is like, you just put it in the input. Like the input is like, you know, please answer the question based on the documents, documents, you know, go for it. Whereas there is the science is looking at these models, like uh, DeepMind had a model called retro. There's like these fusion and decoder layers. There's this uh, memorizing transformers where you would uh, keep the embeddings, keep the vector embeddings. And then you say like, put that in layer nine out of 12 of the language model. And so th it, this has really interesting scaling properties because uh, you can, you know, the way that you can kind of like transpose the matrix multiplication, you could put like pretty massive uh, documents into these models and attend over more context. So I think that's an incredibly exciting part of this is that I don't think we've seen yet the full power of these retrieval augmented language models and what they can do when they can take in really massive context. And then, yeah, as you mentioned, I read your article as well. And I've, obviously I've mentioned earlier, I've been studying like Langchain and Llama Index and all this kind of thinking of like, okay, how exactly are we going to organize the, um, you know, the search results to present it to the language model? It's such an interesting topic. Um, yeah, maybe we could talk a bit about this idea that the llama index idea, like there's one thing that I really like about this integration where it's like you retrieve a hundred results from Weaviate and then you need to like extract structure from those results before handing it to the language model and the language model kind of use the language model is what's used to extract the structure as well. So it's, if it's like you want to turn the top 100 results into a knowledge graph, you're using the language model to go like what kind of like relational triples are in this and it parses it out. And then you have this new thing that then goes into the input to like another language model. So, mm. so kind of like, yeah, I'm just curious to your thoughts generally on like how exactly do you hand the search results to the language model and how much opportunity is there maybe for more innovation in that? Yeah, uh, it's a good question. I haven't actually explored the exact use case that you just had. I love the idea of instructing the creation of a knowledge graph. Uh, and actually that artificial general intelligence paper by market by Microsoft's research team actually showcased like they instructed ChatGPT to ask a sequence of questions to mm. understand something. I don't I forget what it was. I think it was like the interior of a house and it demonstrated the creation of a mental map of that house that was accurate, like a, a visual diagram of how that house is laid out hmm. from just asking questions. So uh, I, I, I'm constantly finding myself not only amazed, but like uh, I'm, I'm finding myself like asking, like, why aren't I just using ChatGPT to uh, like even like an ETL an extract transfer load kind of uh, activity? They're, they're very suitable for that. I think the challenge that I have with like even feeding, I think you said like 100 or so items, like you're going to fast come up to the uh, the token limit for ChatGPT. And I'd be curious from your standpoint, is that A, something that you see going away and B, I mean, this is the first I've heard about like the layering of LLMs, which really would solve a lot of those token uh, upper bound issues. Because if you can just like, I, I don't know enough about to even like explain that, but it uh, seems like that would address a lot of the, the, the challenges with like feeding your entire corpus in one point to the, the ChatGPT API, right? 
Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm just fascinated by this topic. This has been kind of the number one thing in my mind lately is like these like text to SQL is kind of the starting idea where the language model is like writing an SQL query to get information out of the database. But I uh, think we're thinking about like, okay, how do we do this with Weaviate? How do we get the language model to use the symbolic filters? So it's like, if I, let's say I have the Weaviate code base is like the thing that's too many tokens to just put it all in there at once. So we need to like cleverly search through it. And we have these kind of symbolic filters of like the, um, like the folder structure, I think is a really good one for these, you know, big code repositories. You, you know, you have like modules is here, like repos, adapters, like these kind of things. And it's like, the, how do you tell the language model? How do you prior it, uh, like um, a prompt it, sorry, prior. How do you prompt it to say, um, you know, you have these categories that you can filter your search through. So like, do you only want to look through like, you know, this particular folder of the project structure? I, yeah. That kind of thing of like um, getting the language models to use the database interfaces. So are you saying that the repository, the, the Weaviate code base repo is an ancillary to the querying language? And by understanding the relationships between the folders and directories, they can, they being the GPT, whatever, it can then understand how these manifest into the queries that yeah that idea is the one that i think is um is, sick. yeah <laughs> yeah that, i think that idea is sick too it, <laughs> it's like the um because it's uh this general thing is, on it on any code base right yeah i think that that linking that that does imply that your software architecture is like really well mapped around like the methods that you expose in the query language to like you said, the modules, the, uh, I don't know enough about, you said it was written in Rust. A Golang, but yeah. But, but, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. This, because all these code bases have this kind of, and that's like the thing is like the structure is like, um, like talking with Dennis about MEM and these like, you know, like workspaces where you create a workspace, like, I don't know, like you have some chapter of your molecular biology class and you're like, and then you keep like, you create a page and then you add content and it like, there's like this structure as well. And I think this structure is really well captured in like Weaviate has the symbolic properties as well as the vector search. And then the filtered vector search is like made crazy fast. So like this bitmap index thing of like these intense, like filtered uh, disk and is a paper that just came out another like exciting idea of how you integrate those two things. But yeah, it's, it's just such an interesting topic. Um, so maybe there's something I really want to come back to with the mixed peak and the uh, specific problems thing is, and we touched on it already with this idea of how Alpaca was uh, fine-tuned with like a different data set of reinforced learning from human feedback. But how are you thinking about fine-tuning? I always, I ask everyone about this topic because I love it. Okay. So I'm going to caveat everything, <laughs> which is by saying that like I, I have a team of really brilliant engineers that I'm working with and they're the ones that are really creating like I'm kind of creating the uh, the little bit of an abstraction layer on top of like, think of it as you have core services and then you have like routers on top of those core services. Uh, the really impressive team of engineers is building like the core embedding inference and uh, re-ranking and fine tuning models. But I think we actually talked about this at the Weaviate meetup, Connor, which is like, 
how, or maybe it was your colleague, but I was, I was asking like, what are some of the like really suitable production use cases of learn to rank? Mm. Right. And I know learn to rank isn't quite fine tuning. I think there's probably a little bit of a nuance, but, uh, I think that like re-ranking results around the previous sequence of some kind of, uh, signal that a user has and reordering it based off of some kind of conversion metric that's that's exciting but i think at its core it again it goes back to understanding the end user so like for example i'm exploring with this kali use case which is it's really like an embedded search bar on any website it's just like a javascript widget that you can embed on your site that Mm -hmm. understands all the files and the directory of the files and i think if if we're able to kind of track the activity of a user across a number of pages, uh, we can create kind of analogies between, hey, this sequence of activities with user A converted, and converted is just a metric that is specific to this company. So maybe if it's an e-commerce company, they bought a chair, or if it's a Weaviate uh, company, they deployed some kind of instance. So Everybody has their own metric that they use to define conversion. And so if we can build a learn to rank model that is actually reordering the results based off the propensity to convert, then I think that's really attaching ourselves to the goal of the business. Uh, But I realize that's a little bit different than fine tuning. Uh, Well, yeah, no, I I think there is a relationship, but yeah, we'll come back to particularly like what kind of fun thing, but yeah, learning to rank. I love this topic. Uh, yesterday I recorded a podcast with um, Erica from Weaviate and Roman and Siva from MetaRank. And so- Oh Meta- yeah, great people, right? Yeah, and so this kind of idea of, uh, you know, using like an XG Boost style model that takes in like user features, as you mentioned, like the, um, there's like the interaction event. Obviously, like, I think people are aware of this kind of like, you know, you, you people they collect click data about you, and like when you like except interact. all, except all. <laughs> yeah. yeah, So, so this kind of layer. At, I mean, I guess. Um, I think I, I, this kind of learning to rank thing. I think I'm very curious about like the generalization of it, kind of like the like because you're using all these features, and I I wonder if that's going to be as kind of robust as like the content only based cross encoders. And then I one idea I think is extremely interesting is maybe taking these tabular features and just kind of translating them to text and just making it a text-based input. And then, you know, then you can access the transfer learning kind of part of it where, Ooh. you know, the, that's what I think is kind of the frontier of learning to rank. Per, and I, yeah, I was, I think um, when I so mentioned wait, the, yeah. Let me just make sure I understand that. Said differently, we have user A that goes and clicks a button on the first page and then scrolls down to the second page and then clicks another button on the third page. That's three different steps that can be mapped to text, unique text. And then that sequence, let's say it's an array of strings, gets sent to a large language model or whatever. And then the embedding is generated, stored in a search engine, and then you can run like sequential inference. Is that kind of maybe uh, not? Yeah, yeah, that's well. You, you, yeah, like the because you, you kind of confused me a bit, like in changing my understanding with how you're describing, like the scroll down the interaction. Because I, I suppose you could collect a crazy amount of tabular features that might be too much to translate into text. 
But then I also think if you're collecting that many features, you're going to overfit to some pattern in this feature vector that you've done. Like, totally. you know, scroll down for three seconds, waited for two seconds, hovered over this for five seconds. Right? Like, I feel like if that kind of vector, that kind of feature engineering is going to overfit. But yeah, no, that's exactly it is like um, you translate it all into text. And then like I think about um, if I had some kind of user description like usually cross encoder is like query document but like if it was like query user description document you know i don't see why that wouldn't work just as well and then also you, you use the large language model to do that kind of reasoning and then you distill it into like the 20 million parameter cross encoder that runs crazy fast and 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 then the <laughs> the topic then i think is um you know there'll need to be like software layers to make that kind of thing accessible, right? Like um, training ranking model. So I really thought that meta rank podcast was great because I, I really like what they're doing, how they've built the like ML ops just for ranking. I think it's a pretty cool niche. Like, uh, yeah, because you have all how, the, how do they do it? If you were to summarize in like a paragraph? Well, as I can say, like coming from the beginning of it, my interest with integrating this to Weaviate was like Weaviate has this module system where you access the retrieval from, you know, like vector search, hybrid search with the symbolic filters. And, and then you can pipe that into like a question answering model. And so we could also mm -hmm. pipe that into these uh, ranking models. And so it's like if if we can just make that API to the MetaRank services. So MetaRank does the full set of like the you know, inference hosting the model, like the, you know, how you do the data ingestion, how you do the model versioning, the validation that is like quite a package of MLOps things. And yeah. Yeah. I, uh, while I was actually at Mongo, I was trying to do my best on educating the entire solutions architect org, which was like 400 people at the time around vector search and from interviewing all of the com companies that were exploring it, what you just described were the biggest pains around it, which was like, okay, how do we do model versioning? Where do we host the models? How do feedback loops work? Uh, what's like the best reference architecture for the ML ops to, to handle all of this? Uh, what I'm finding is like, I'm forced to store model versions as like a string in some kind of other uh, data store and then create an index for all of those different model versions. Because as you know, if we just tune a model even slightly, it kind of renders all of the embeddings obsolete. And that poses an entirely new challenge, which is, okay, how do you kind of refresh all of the existing embeddings? And I've seen some people have some pretty impressed distributed compute uh, workloads. They're using Spark to just run everything in like this horizontally compute fashion. Some people are using like serverless GPUs to do that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it's a huge challenge. And this is why like, if, if anybody's exploring starting a company in the AI space, it's tooling is hot uh, just because of like, no one knows how to productionize some of these uh, applications. And like, I'm sure Weaviate is doing phenomenally for that reason. Uh, but like all these ML ops and even what we're working on, which is these API based companies to help abstract a lot of these complexities. There's, there's a lot of interest in that, uh, both from the market and from investors. So, uh, you did ask a question earlier, Connor, which was like, is there going to be a winner take all for these models? 
Uh, I'm curious to hear what your opinion is because like everyone's, it's so obvious right now that open AI is like absolutely dominating, but like, is, is that really the future? Uh, are we just going to all be succumb to the whims of Microsoft? <laughs> um, okay. Well, I think, um, it's a, it's a super interesting question. I, I think, uh, whew, um, yeah, I mean, well, it it's I could see it being kind of monopoly like in the sense that well, this kind of like zero shot thing to me is very monopolistic. Like this, you know, like the whisper model that it goes audio to text, similar to GPT four. This AG, like I think AGI is pretty like I don't I don't think that you'll be like oh I didn't like the answer from GPT four. Let me go ask Cohere or let me go ask Bard. Right, this kind of thing like where you go ask another one of the AGIs. Like, I think it's more likely that you'll just tune your prompt kind of if you're unhappy with the answer. But I do think like, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not, I haven't really thought about this too much, but I, oh man, it's such an interesting topic. I wish I had a more, like a more thought through. Yeah. Prediction sorry, on sorry to put you on the spot. I know you guys, <laughs> WeV8 has a lot of partnership <laughs> with the different uh, modeling companies and I've, I've used most of, most of them cohere, uh, hugging face. I've, I've used like so many of the LLMs out there. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I think personally there's probably, there's going to need to be some kind of like staggering of the offerings. And we talked about how like the companies that are offering these like domain specific models and they are like supporting the training on companies, knowledge bases, they're going to do really well. Mm -hmm. But then there's this entire, uh, arm of companies that really need security. Uh, I went to a security meetup yesterday, uh, a company in my, our lead investors portfolio. And they, uh, like what we talked about earlier, they've completely pivoted their roadmap to support. How do we create, what did they, what did he call it? Like zero knowledge proofs mm. around, uh, like what you're providing to the model and ensuring that you can validate that the model is actually, I don't want to butcher it, uh, but it, it's an area of academic rigor and like the lowest hanging fruit is really the models that you can self-host. And if that's never a direction that ChatGPT goes in, which could unlock a can of worms in Pandora's box, because I know there's a lot of filters that mm -hmm. they're putting on top, but... Uh, I think there's a lot of avenues different model companies can go after. It's like, is security the most important? Is domain specific the most important? Is general usage the most important? Cohere has a phenomenal API, API set. Uh, so, so maybe it's just like the developer experience. So uh, I think there's going to be, there's going to need to be like different niches and maybe OpenAI does become the app store, but then like Cohere becomes the Salesforce right? Like there's no Salesforce on the app store. Maybe there is, nobody uses it, but like there's still a behemoth because they attack the domain specific knowledge base. Yeah. And I like, yeah, we've had a lot of partners and friends and so that, like another company that, you know, that I'm super interested in is what Mosaic ML is doing. And I think, as you mentioned, the Salesforce, I think Mosaic ML is the, like, the, is a company that's just super impressed me with their approach. I love like the, um, 
like I love this kind of business model. Obviously, it's like the Weaviate business model. So I like it a lot of like where you kind of open source the software, but then the mm. like enterprise hosting is managed. And so, you know, Mosaic ML, they, they have this composer library. They're sharing all this knowledge on regularization and, you know, they're they're hitting they're cutting the cost of training. Bert. I think they just said that they trained Bert for like twenty dollars. And it's like they're, you know, they started out by saying I can get you GPT three at four hundred fifty thousand dollars, and now today it's three hundred thousand dollars, and they're, you know, they're they're cutting this down. And I, yeah, I, I think it's super interesting that kind of idea of the, you know, the language model for your custom thing. But then there's so so yeah, I think actually we could segue this into two things. There's the language model for your custom thing, and we talked about the kind of custom re ranker and how that re learning to rank generally uses all these crazy specific like tabular features about you. And then there is the embeddings models. Like, like what do you think of? And and you mentioned that problem of uh, the revectorization problem. That's a pretty big problem. Like, if you update the embeddings and you have a billion embeddings, you then need to recompute a billion <laughs> embeddings with the new model. Right. I've seen some Not interesting only compute, yeah. but like retrieve the original corpuses as well, which is like mm. its own mess of challenges. And that's why these like hybrid search engines are going to become more and more important. Uh, which is like you need the original content in order to do the re-embedding. But sorry, I cut you off. Oh no, yeah, that's yeah, it's great. I mean, the yeah, like vectorizing a billion documents. Yeah, like I've seen a cool idea, which is like like the Facebook DPR model, like where you just update the query embedding model. I think that's a potential idea where. Uh, the zero shot embedding happens with the like you know the OpenAI or Cohere embeddings model, especially Cohere's multilingual embeddings model is amazing. And you you know that's your document embeddings, and then you update maybe the query. And then yeah, another interesting thing from that uh, Cohere Twitter talk that Bob said was that he thinks uh, like eighty percent of the cases the zero shot model paired with the like lexical BM twenty five in the hybrid setup that that's a pretty good you know that's Ooh. a pretty strong bet. Okay. Yep. Yeah, and I this is uh, an interesting topic that I've been curious about, which is like, is TFIDF and BM25, are they going to become obsolete at some point? Like, are we always going to need to do like string matches to some capacity or will vector searches kind of just dominate? Uh, obviously, you guys have an opinion there because you've baked it into your roadmap. Uh, but uh, yeah, I've... So, so you were saying, sorry, so the BM25 combination with what has excelled? Uh, so like a zero shot embedding model. So, you know, like the open AI embeddings, pairing that with BM25 for, let's say, looking through air, airline manuals, like, some, you know, like some uh, application like that. Uh, yeah, and I, I do think BM25, it's pretty interesting because there is definitely search, like, I like this idea of having like intent and like prompting search as well. There are a couple of papers like task aware retrieval with instructions and instruct and the instructor models that are like you prompt kind of the embedding model as well, because the embedding model also is like capturing a relationship. So it's like a, one of the great academic data sets is beer and beer has this one data set called Arguana and in Arguana you're retrieving counter arguments. So you, you put in some argument and it's not, it doesn't say, get me what agrees with this, get me what doesn't agree with this. And that little difference to like the retrieval models obviously aren't like adapted to that. It's, it's very interesting because like, the, it's like that negation thing where you say like, I am happy, I am not happy. And then you're like, oh, why are these vectors similar to each other? And it's like, well, they are semantically similar and that's the relationship that's captured. So 
yeah, I might have gone on a rant there for a bit, but I, you know. Yeah, so because beer was trained on, and it looks like it's B-E-I-R, right? Oh, Not yeah. B-E-R. <laughs> so it, because beer was trained on like the inverse or the negation of some of these comments, they have slightly better understanding of the use cases where like I am not happy versus I am happy, which is interesting because like as someone that's experimented with a lot of the like hugging face off the shelf models, that's something that has historically been quite challenging to grasp because you could have an entire sentence and just one word makes that entire sentence completely different, (laughs) uh, which is probably an area of academic rigor. Uh, so taskware retrieval with instructions. Okay. Bookmarking that. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, it's so fascinating. I, and I think kind of one more thing, I, I have strong opinions about B or B E I R because I've spent so much time working on adding this to Weaviate, but like, so the beer is like this zero shot benchmark. It's it, like, um, I think 17 in total, but three are like closed source. So 14 are like openly available. And so you don't do any training is the idea of it is like, how well can a model trained on something else generalize to this? And I think that that, it, and that's like that and this, uh, I think like MS Marco is one of the data sets, but it also has a training set. I don't think we have a good academic data set for the like continual learning case. Like the, like it would be amazing if there was like an academic data set that was like, let's say the PyTorch documentation and like how it evolves over time. I, I think that kind of data set is needed because it, you know, it, it's like, um, like I love this example with Weaviate where it's like in 1.16, we introduce ref and it's like a model would have no clue what ref is, you know, like it's this kind of sequence problem, I think. And by sequence, you mean kind of capturing the evolution of a corpus and, and using the deltas between these stages to tune the model? Uh, I mean, that's a, that's a good point of like, how exactly do you want to do this? I mean, I, I, cause I just think like the, um, it's like the kind of like the train test set is like, Mm -hmm. uh, there's usually like this IID, you know, like independent and identically distributed where you, you know, have all your data and you're like randomly sampling the training set, randomly sampling the testing set compared to this like historical data splitting where it's like you trained on 2012 to 2018 tested on 2019, 2020. And I think that that's more realistic in my view. Right, right. And I think the use cases for that are are really aligned with uh, just this concept of a knowledge base where the content itself is evolving and you need to kind of not only train, but test on like the, the deltas of those stages over time. Uh, if it's all right with you, I'd like to pivot slightly into something that might be a little bit irrelevant to NLP, which is some, like a little bit of a hot take that I have uh as of late so i've been going to a lot of these like meetups uh, in new york i'm pretty new to the city uh including the weaviate one and they often have you put like name tags on and what i've been really into doing is just like putting some kind of like contentious opinion on these name tags and i i I think that one of the most important things as somebody that's building and and trying to explore and weaviate's doing a phenomenal job at this is building in public and really showcasing not only like the final released version, but all of the steps that you got to get there. And not only does it help you build an audience on the way, but it really kind of showcases that you're a human and you're a little bit vulnerable because you're kind of maybe nervous about the steps that you're exposing, but it unlocks so many different opportunities around getting feedback at every stage, 
garnering like a really strong evangelist uh, user base. And the, the best example of this is really open source, mm. right? If everybody can see every uh, pull request, every commit, every issue, then it's really quite obvious how everything is going. And it, especially if you're just like a sole entrepreneur engineer, it's like everybody can see, hey, this is the progress this guy has made on on this product. I don't know. Uh, I don't know if you have any projects that you've done independent of Weviate in the past, but like, is that something that you've explored? And are are there any companies that are doing that really well? Yeah. I, oh, I love this topic. Well, I, yeah, because I think about it a bit. I think like, um, oh, it's very interesting. It's like this question about like the business model of open source kind of in general. And then as like, because I think open source is also kind of like a content strategy in a way mm. like you, you, you're like, yeah, by like constantly doing these releases and then explaining all the details of it, you curate an audience and a lot of these products, like having a community that's like super valuable because especially if they're making pull requests and things like, like I know, like with, yeah. Yeah. Like I think Langchain is a great example of something that's achieved this, like, you know, people, especially with like the integrations, integrations being such a massive part of this, like with other software companies and, it like so yeah like if you're creating this content and then um that's kind of why i like about doing this podcast as well is it's like the potential to you know have somebody who doesn't necessarily work at weaviate but you can kind of like highlight what they're doing and it kind of incentivizes everyone to work together yeah it's pretty fascinating but i i think some parts of the business i don't know i like i think closed source because there has to be some kind of advantage unless you're like a marketplace business like something where the community yeah. is the moat well, and the community is is often like a, a really powerful competitive edge. Uh, I mean, as someone that worked in an open source uh, company for a long time, I can I can say that. But I think the real moat is around the abstractions, mm-hmm. and like managing an open source project is is always going to be a challenge. If you, especially if you want to have some kind of semblance of high availability and uh, an SLA guaranteed to your customers. And so therein lies the importance of like having these servers all managed for you. And there are some interesting companies that are like really abstracting the server, uh, the, the like server architecture mm. of I'm sure mosaic is doing that to some degree. Uh, there's one company, I won't give them a name, but, uh, they are purely just a decorator in Python that says, Hey, run this in like, uh, run this as a serverless function. Uh, there's a couple of companies that are doing that. That's why I didn't want to name anybody. But I, I think that for me at how I'm trying to make myself uh, mix peak competitive is really just around, Hey, let's do our best to abstract a lot of the patterns that we're seeing across these companies. And for us, it's like, Everybody is doing, everybody is probably storing their files in some kind of content repo, like an S3. They're all trying to extract the contents. They have very strong variants of files. We want to extract the contents in a way that it's maintaining the, uh, the, the structure of the file. So for example, paragraphs and pages and PDFs, rows in a spreadsheet, we want to maintain that. And then offer some kind of search interface that spans all of them. And all of these are like all these different steps. And if we were just to open source the entire Mixpeak code base, then we could probably, people could probably do a lot of that. But 
they won't get the same experience as just like a two API call kind of thing. And hopefully you guys are doing, are exploring that in the same way with WeVA cloud. Yeah, that is really interesting. I maybe, um, I, if you could teach me a little more about the serverless thinking, we had Eric Bernardson on the podcast to talk about. Oh, I'm thinking of Modal. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I saw your article with uh, Banana as well. Could you kind of explain to me what these companies are doing? Okay. Just. Yeah. I mean, I, I had an idea of like in, in, in any industry, the companies that kind of consolidate all of the different steps tend to do really well. Uh, and it is kind of compounded in the ML space, which is, like the more data you have, the more valuable you are, the more, like we said, the domain specific models mm. to every customer is, is, is the future, uh, like what Mosaic is doing. And so, uh, and if you're baking in the ability to spin up an inference engine, a model in an architecture that is both cheap and fast. And you're able to do that in a really simple way and expose that to your users, then it's, it's a really powerful asset that you have in making your competitive moat as, as a company. It's like the analogy that everybody understands is like, everyone's coming from Google. Everyone's coming from Facebook. They have expectations when they interact with your software. And that expectation is it's fast, it's accurate. And very often, it's a lot more affordable. Uh, so, and that's really why serverless is such a, an interesting space. But what's really fascinating, and this is something that after talking to a bunch of engineers at AWS, GCP, and Azure, is that, is that it doesn't seem like any of them are really attaching, attacking the serverless GPU space. Hmm. I, don't, I don't know why, but like I've seen articles, I've written articles around, hey, if you want to do like serverless GPUs, then... You got to create an elastic cloud, uh, an ECS uh, architecture, then attach uh, whatever the GPU instance is and kind of have scaling baked in with maybe like Kubernetes. And mm -hmm. anybody that's used Kubernetes knows that it's like the biggest pain. And so like Modal, Banana, they're all abstracting the kind of deployment of these models via the serverless GPUs. And I like Modal's approach, which is just a decorator in mm -hmm. Python. I haven't actually used Banana, but uh, yeah, Eric's a great guy. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I've always been so interested in this. I mean, full like disclaimer, I'm like, I spend most of my time reading research papers and stuff. Like I'm just, these are just like, You're on the cutting <laughs> edge. not an expert on this, but like the, the thinking of like, the Kubernetes and the scaling different resources for different kind of uh, jobs. Like I was always kind of as a as studying deep learning, I was always really curious. Like, how's weights and biases? Like, how are they valued at like a billion dollars? Because it's like a it looks to me like hyperparameter logging, tuning logging, and you know, I'd, I did like some like marketing work with Determined AI where they were also doing this like uh, hyperparameter cluster thing, and so I was like starting to learn about this kind of cluster management thing and. I kind of came to this thinking that like the kind of like the callbacks require different resources than the training. And so, you know, having this it's kind of like with Weaviate, like where you uh, have some resources for the Weaviate and then you have different resources for like, say, the query embedding container like this. These require different kinds of uh, computers and like all that kind of thing. And it's pretty I mean, I, I like I really don't know too much about Kubernetes, but like or like what the particular 
pains are, but I, that's how I understand the idea is like, yeah, like serverless to me, it sounds like if you want to just have a query embedding model on, you know, running, you just, you know, write decorator on a Python function. Right. And that, that kind of thing is super cool. Um, yeah. So I don't know if I have too many ideas on this, but I think it's super interesting. I mean, I, Leah, like what is the big Kubernetes is a pain problem? Like, I've heard this so many times, but I don't really yeah. know. I think it's it's around like there's two there's two aspects to it. One, and I'm also not a Kubernetes expert by any means. I've just used it. It's it's probably the fact that I'm not an expert, which is like creating a little bit of a bias in me complaining about how challenging it is, <laughs> uh, which is like a kind of uh, a weird situation. But for me, it's really like the creation of the Kubernetes cluster in addition to the maintenance of it. And I, what, what could be, and this is my own theory is like when you have distributed inference engines, the state isn't consistent across them. And I'm sure Eric could make some explanation on why, uh, it's like serverless environments can overcome that challenge. But like, if you have an app server and you're distributing the workload across three different servers and you're routing the query across one of those three different servers, how do you guarantee that there is like a state between the servers? Like the perfect example that everybody could probably understand is this concept of context mm. with the ChatGPT. So let's imagine we have three different serverless functions or one even one serverless function. And every time a user is calling this decorator, it is deploying this inference on, let's say, serverless environment A, and then another user is doing serverless environment B. How is context shared between them? Because they don't, there's no state. It's serverless. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I'm probably just speaking out of my, uh, my keister here, because I don't know much about the space, but that's an area that has always been challenging from purely, I'm an app, a software developer, not a researcher, but that's always been an area of challenge with like serverless functions and databases is you need some kind of state management. Yeah. Amazing. I've been learning about like replication consistency from Wev8 and, and it sounds like Lampert on, is he related to the guy that created the Lampert clock? Le Oh, oh, oh no! He, he has, Nathan hasn't been on the podcast yet. Just oh. a friend of mine that we're talking about, uh, and I don't know about the clock thing. <laughs> but um, yeah, well, the, the Lampert clock is like the foundation of like distributed systems and like consistency. Oh, mm, systems. Gotcha, gotcha. I, I, yeah, I've just yeah. So I, I definitely didn't like study too much replication in school, but I'm now listening to it from like Eddie and Parker and Red One and like just you know being on the fly on the wall in these conversations. But like the, um, yeah, that kind of thing of like, if I have, if I need four GPUs to run my chat GPT inference, I suspect that's like the Azure cloud has maybe been built around this in tandem with open AI. If I was, cause yeah, that sounds like a terrible problem. <laughs> I think, and I know there are companies like Ray that do this kind of like, uh, distributed GPU management. It's super interesting. I mean, I'm more so interested in this company called neural magic. That's trying to compress the models and, you know, either run them on CPUs or they recently got the hunt. There's a research paper with one of the two researchers has the neural magic affiliation that's run it on a single GPU, the 175 billion parameters. And I like quantization sparsity, these sparsity is like one of these things that hasn't been realized is like the lottery ticket hypothesis is like, 
you could train the sparse networks from scratch, but now there's like a, a lot of like, okay, how do we really realize sparsity? But yeah, I'm <laughs> talking about it like user too. Like I don't, <laughs> I don't think about these things too often, but I do think this is, yeah, it really. So it sounds like what you're saying is the, the future of a lot of these models is really just them reducing in size, but not only size, but the ability to run on more so commodity hardware, because not everybody has, other than the Bitcoin miners out there, not everybody has some like really significant GPU uh, setups, even in the cloud. Yeah, yeah, that's what I, I mean. I think you know they got the uh, the alpaca model. People are like running that on their phones. So it's like, yeah, I saw yeah. Raspberry Pi running it, which obviously <laughs> implies there's no GPU involved at all. I'm sure it's slow as hell, but the fact that they got it running is just a magnificent accomplishment. Yeah, yeah, and I, yeah, I, I, I mean this. I guess it's like the 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 transformers i think became so popular because of how it uses this big matrix multiplication thing for gpus but maybe new architectures like there's obviously like this sparse uh mixture of experts kind of model and yeah like maybe new architectures that don't that aren't so there's like this great paper from uh, sarah hooker called the hardware lottery that's like talks about how much the hardware has influenced the um, architecture decisions in deep learning and these kind of things and yeah, it's, I'm definitely not an expert in this space. <laughs> Do you think, and is there like the idea that the decision to build the models around these really large matrix multiplication and arithmetic, is that really, uh, was that decided on because of GPU popularity, you think? Uh, or I guess, are there other options when you do machine learning? I've only known about just like the linear algebra. Um, well, I, I think, um, yeah, it's like, I'm trying to think, because I, I, I I'm trying to think about how the difference in the computation with like the convolutional kernel is compared to the like attention matrix multiplications. And I do think that the convolutional kernels are implemented by just kind of like replicating the kernel and then making that also a big matrix. So I'm not, yeah, I'm not exactly sure. I, yeah. About, um, exactly how the transformer utilizes more of the GPU than the convolutional model does, or, or if that is really the argument, but I think it's just generally this thing of like, you know, big matrix multiplications Yeah, <laughs> as far as I understand it. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I'm definitely not an expert at all. Uh, but it is interesting to see, like, there's only a couple of hardware companies out there. And they are, I mean, NVIDIA is basically open AI at this point in terms of their like market capitalization on the ML space. So uh, it'll be interesting to see who else is going to take over in the, in the GPU offering space. And maybe there's other options that aren't GPUs. Who knows? Uh, I, went to a, I went to AWS reInvent uh, last year and there was a talk on quantum computers mm -hmm. and she like, the lady, I think it was uh, Ox some Oxford research company. She brings out this like physical quantum computer and it's like the size of my desk. <laughs> and uh, I, maybe that will be capable of some of these uh, calculations <laughs> at some point. Who knows? Yeah, that sounds like a, <laughs> a good topic for like a PhD student. I, like, yeah, yeah, like, 
yeah, the whole one, thing. one other point that I want to leave with before we go is like, there's a lot of FUD and real FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. There's a lot of FUD and, like I said before, like existential uh, threats and kind of just feeling people feeling generally really struggling with the idea of like these models taking over. And while a lot of it might be true, uh, should always encourage like remove yourself from the situation. I mean, uh, I'll tell anybody that wants to listen about this, but I lived in a camper van for a year before moving to the city, like outfitted a, a, a Ford transit high roof with electricals, running water, satellite, bed, everything. And really just like removed myself for a year. And I encourage everyone to not do that. That's obviously pretty extreme, but like operate in sprints and, uh, and coasts. So like you could sprint for a couple of months, but don't forget to coast and whatever coasting is for you, like do it for a, uh, like a, like a fixed amount of time continuously. Uh, it's not enough to, in my mind, just take like a weekend trip here or there. And I realize not everybody has the the benefit of this, but it's really helpful, especially when you're trying to figure out how to uh, resurge whatever project that was just rendered obsolete by the plugin marketplace. <laughs> uh, but yeah, and if everyone, anyone wants to see how to build a van, it's vanlifecoder.com is a, uh, a blog that I maintain <laughs> documenting the build out process and the travels. And I'll be taking it again this summer, hopefully to Northern Canada. That's awesome. Yeah, that's yeah. super awesome. That's great advice. I think, um, yeah, it's, I, I, I think everyone's felt a little bit of existential, like, what is this with the GPT-4? I think, yeah, I, people who are so dismissive of it, I'm like, it's obviously scary. <laughs> like, <laughs> Taking over every single job. I don't think replacement is the right word, but like assets is certainly the right word. Anybody that's not using it is certainly going to fall behind. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think it is pretty intense. I mean, I think a lot, I think the, like the societal issue is like, will this just cause more concentration of power at the top? Because now you're like the top can like has all has even more leverage with just the information uh, control. Yeah. Yeah. I think productivity is probably the best metric to, to look at. I mean, if someone's able to produce more in less time, then they clearly have an advantage. Hopefully these models, again, this is probably still in that like open source alpaca llama space. Once these models do become more and more commoditized and democratized, then it does even the playing field and actually create equal opportunity uh, for all, which is really one of the most important things with creating like a, a really robust society is like, if everyone has access to the same baseline uh, chat GBT model, then I think there there's that even playing field. And sure, everyone's going to have their advantages in some capacity, but we should do our best as a society to ensure that everyone is like doing their best or everyone is exposed to the same like baseline opportunity. And there's a difference between opportunity and outcome. Uh, there will always be people working harder. And there will always be people that have a little bit more of an advantage. But if everyone has the same baseline opportunity, I think that's what we should strive for. 
Yeah, there's a lot of great topics around this. I, I think um, I recently listened to Richard Sacher was on the Gradient podcast, and he was talking about uh, his work with the AI Economist paper and this kind of like running simulations to inform policy decisions where the where the agents in the simulation are reinforcement learning controlled, like to you know make it a little more realistic of a simulation and all these this kind of ideas. Uh, yeah, it's super interesting. I mean, I do like Francois Chalet had this interesting tweet where he was like. Uh, saying that, uh, oh, I'm gonna, but I'm gonna budget this like crazy. But he's saying something like, uh, thinking that GPT four is like super intelligence is similar to thinking that like a 3D printer is just like arbitrary manipulation of matter that you can just like, and I don't know, like that kind of thing of like how, how are we, like it's scary, but is it that far? Is it like complete control of the universe, so to say? <laughs> you know, like I don't know if it really is that in that productive yet uh, but it seems like it's on the way to it <laughs> yeah it's, it's definitely on the way and i think that the plug-in marketplace some of the use cases that i saw on the website are really like oh a uh, phenomenal the paper that i was mentioning by the microsoft research team which again is really biased because open ai and microsoft are obviously together uh but they analogized this ability for ChatGPT to figure out problems on its own I, via questions, et cetera, with the time in which Homo sapiens discovered their ability to use tools. Hmm. Uh, so like, for example, OpenAI or ChatGPT was capable of kind of like calling a third-party API when it wasn't able to figure something out hmm. on its own. It's clearly demonstrating enough reasoning to use a tool to accomplish its goal, which is, again, that same overlap, which is Homo sapiens discovering how to use a knife, mm -hmm. what fire is. So we could be seeing like the dawn of a, a, a new species, a, a digital species. Uh, and maybe there will be that like evolution uh, staging of, of this new species. Who knows? Yeah, sure there's a lot of sci-fi uh, articles around it. Uh, yeah, I mean, before we go, I do want to stay on this little, like, I've been thinking a ton about this idea of how with language models, they can have this like role playing, like one language model is the writer, the other is the editor, or say Weaviate, right, where Weaviate is a, like a remote company where, you know, for the most part, we interface via texting each other and writing code and pull requests and like having calls with people outside the company and things like this. It's like you could have the, you know, the core team full of language models that basically the difference is like what information the language model is hooked into. So like if you're on the core team, it, I don't know, like if I'm sampling someone, <laughs> I don't know, but like, you know, people access different information. And I think what we'll see is like entire like digital like companies that are just like language models with different roles. <laughs> mm. Kind of how, yeah, I mean. So you're saying that there might not even be a single employee at a company. It'll just be all these large language models that have their own personas and maybe they're trained on their specific skill sets. You've got uh, a large language model that is specifically marketing. You've got one that's specifically sales, engineering, et cetera. I could see that. I did see a tweet. I don't know who it was, but... He basically posed a challenge to ChatGPT to turn $100 into $200. Mm. And he was like, do whatever means possible. And 
I think what they amounted to was some kind of like affiliate marketing uh, project, which is like cool and all, but like, what are you going to do with that? Uh, so it kind of, uh, it suggested a domain name. It wrote the website. <laughs> it uh, reached out to a bunch of affiliates and it kind of built the analytics uh, structure. So I guess each of these, they, they need to be modular, right? You need to be asking these questions in a little bit of a modular fashion. And I think this is also something that ChatGPT struggles with is like every ask is sequential. And that's really what ChatGPT excels in, which is like, you ask a question, it gives you an answer, and you ask it to tune that answer or replace it or whatever. That sequence is how we all think, but what if it could uh, kind of go way back into some other state? And this is, again, like that statefulness. If it could go back into another state and uh, resume mm. some kind of context there. And this is probably where the layers of large language models comes into play. And even these are like, the concepts of agents. Maybe you have a version that's doing X and a version that's doing Y, where version Y has access to the context of, uh, I don't know, some other agent. Uh, this is interesting. I don't know. This is the first time I'm thinking about this, but there's there's so many different opportunities. This is a gold rush. It yeah. certainly is. Yeah, it definitely is. And I, I really liked your article about the content verification layers because I've been thinking a lot also about like you can sample many different decoding pathways. It's like you're saying with the stateful thing, like, you know, it's okay, it, you know, it's thinking and then it gets to this node and then you have like this, like, I think temperature is now like, just if I say temperature, people will understand that you can adjust the temperature to get different, more random, more deterministic outputs from the language model. But really the way it works is there's like this probability tree that it's decoding through and you could take many pathways through that tree to get several different generations. And yeah, I mean, yeah, that is like, cause the thinking with the content verification layers is like you sample all these outputs and then you just kind of like filter it that way. Like obviously the most of the filters I think are right now like more like guardrails of like, whoa, don't say that. <laughs> like that kind of thing. Whereas I feel like if it's like writing code, maybe a classifier could classify if this would compile or not, or, or not even a classifier. Maybe I don't like, I don't, I don't know if that's a great example. Cause like, obviously you like compile it, I don't, I don't know. but like <laughs> this kind of thing of like sampling anyway. So I, I do think I've gotten totally off topic. Uh, Ethan, thank you so much for joining the WeVay podcast. I mean, we covered so many topics that like really challenged my thinking in a lot of these different things. And I hope I didn't say anything too stupid. <laughs> but yeah. No, I mean, you could always censor it after post-production. <laughs> but no, this was great, Connor. Uh, always interested in talking to people in the space. And uh, if anybody wants to reach out, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to talk. Uh, building out this this project, this startup, doing it in public. There's mixpeak.com and then there's kali.ai. And I am uh, Ethan Steininger on anything. I mean, I'm pretty Googleable. Or I guess ChatGPT. Maybe I should check if, if <laughs> per, per, perplexity.ai definitely does. I'd encourage anyone to search their name in there. It's really cool. Yeah, yeah, that's super cool. I, the perplexity thing. I mean, I think yeah, just the whole like kind of the new era of like U.com, Neva, these like just brand new ways of thinking about search. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, super cool. Cool.